0: Well, today we come to a really great passage in the book of Acts. It's it's long, uh, so we're going to have to go fast and cover a lot of material in a short time. But such an important passage. Uh, we're going to talk about the conversion of Cornelius. Some years back, like in the late 60s, early 70s, missionary Helen Rosevere, uh in Africa had dropped somebody off at the airport, taxied them to the airport. was coming back to her uh, place and she's driving and she's so sleepy you know, just overwhelmingly sleepy. And she thought, I, I got to stop. And there was a cluster of uh, bushes and small trees off to the side. So she thought, I'm going to pull over here on the side of the road and I'm going to go in the shade and I'm just going to take a little nap because I feel terrible. So she pulled off to the side of the road and she walked over to the clump of small trees, bushes. And there's a guy already there in the shade resting. And he looks at her and says, are you a scent one? And she says, you know, in her mind, well, I'm a missionary, so I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to say, yeah, I, I am a sent one. And, um, she says, what do you mean? And he said, are you a sent one to tell me about Jesus? And she said, yes, I am. And so she, she knew the fellow was illiterate, he couldn't read, and so she had one of the wordless books, you know what that is, with the different color pages, and she walked him through how to be a Christian. And he became a Christian right then and there. And uh, he was so happy that she came along. And so before leaving, she says, I'm just curious to know why you ask me that question. When I first saw you, are you a sent one? He said, oh, because my brother said that there were these missionaries who are sent from God and they can tell you how to go to heaven. And I was sitting here in the shade just now praying that the Lord would send me one of those missionaries, a sent one from God who could tell me how to be a Christian. And so there she is, so sleepy, she can't go another mile. She pulls over, goes to the shade, and the guy was praying that she would come. Crazy, right? Well, that's the way the Lord works. The Lord must love people very much to do things like that. And the best illustration of that in Scripture is the conversion of Cornelius. So a little background just to get us going. This whole story of Cornelius takes 66 verses in the book of Acts. That is a lot of material, all of chapter 10 and part of chapter 11. And this is, you know, 66 verses. This is far more than the amount of time in the book of Acts that's spent on the conversion of all the Samaritans in chapter eight or the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, also chapter eight, or even the conversion of Saul, Saul has actually three places in the book of Acts where his conversion is described. And all three of them together are only 50 verses, not 66. <clears throat> On the day of Pentecost, we have 41 verses committed to that uh, story, which is, you know, monumentally important. In chapter 3 of the book of Acts, you have the story of the lame man who was healed. And then all kinds of uh, sermons and events following And all of that is shorter than the story of Cornelius' conversion. The Jerusalem Council in chapter 15 is 31 verses. We have 66 for Cornelius, 31 for the Jerusalem Council, which is a huge important thing in the book of Acts. And the ministry of Stephen is bigger, 68 verses instead of 66. But it shows you how important this story of Cornelius really is in the book of Acts. There are... Eight lessons we're going to draw. The hardest one is the first one, but it's really important, so we can't skip that. Uh, There are eight important lessons from Cornelius' story. It's where you sort of connect all the dots. Suddenly, a whole lot of things in the book of Acts come together in the conversion of Cornelius. So we have all of these really important life lessons. And I probably should have divided this into two messages because there's a lot for you to digest But it's sort of like a joke. And you say, "Well, next week I'm going to tell you the punchline. Oh, we just can't wait a week. That's really not going to work. We need to see it all at once, okay? So life lesson number one. The Messianic end times miracles commenced by Jesus would eventually taper down in what we call the mystery church age of grace. They would eventually taper down. But that's not happening here in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 10. Uh, this is full-on miracles. It's not happening. This is about 32 to 35 AD. Jesus was on the cross in 32, so immediately after, this is the time frame we're in the book of Acts. And the miracles have not tapered down at all at this time. But I want to remind you that this is a very miraculous time. We're going to see several miracles in connection with Cornelius. And also, Cornelius' story is back-to-back with Tabitha. Uh, Tabitha's story is that she was raised from the dead by Peter. So you have... A resurrection from death. And in all of the Bible, there are only 11 of these, depending on how you count them. And so this is a resurrection from death. And by the way, of course, only Jesus rose from death, never to die again. So that one is still, you know, unique. But so Tabitha is raised from death. And then Cornelius' story has all these miracles uh, attached to it. So it's a very miraculous time in the book of Acts. It's astonishing what happened with Tabitha. It's astonishing what happens with Cornelius. And so here we're going to see. The importance, like we always ask the question, so why isn't it like that now? Why don't we have Tabitha's raised from the death uh, dead? And why don't we have all of these miracles associated with Cornelius' conversion? You know, is it just a lack of faith on our part? Why isn't it this way? If you studied with us in the book of Acts so far, you know we've talked about these things a few times. And hopefully all of this is just by way of review and familiar to you already. But uh, remember that in the Bible, the cosmic disturbances of the end times are coupled together with the peak charismatic gifts. So if you don't see the cosmic disturbances, the the sun going dark, uh, the moon becoming blood red, if you're not seeing the cosmic disturbances of the end times, then you shouldn't be seeing the most miraculous period of uh, Bible prophecy. So remember in Acts 2, which quotes Joel 2, You'll see these are coupled together, right? It's very important that you see them coupled together. Acts 2:17 Shall come to pass in the last days. When? In the last days. When's that? Well, that would be the last days. All right. Shall come to pass in the last days, declares God. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. Uh, the charismatic gifts, right? And your old men shall dream dreams. And I will show wonders in heaven above, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord comes. So you see two things coupled together, the charismatic gifts and the end times cosmic disturbances, and they have to go together. That's how it has to be. That's the way it was when Joel said it in the first place. In Acts chapter two, Peter says, yep, that's the way it has to be. And he confirms what Joel said, quoting Joel two in Acts two. All right. So the church had to transition from the extraordinarily miraculous messianic end times that was foretold and commenced by the miracles of Jesus The church had to transition from that to the more muted miracles of the mystery church age, which is where we find ourselves today. A diminishing of miracles that was evident even as the apostles grew older. The charismatic gifts did indeed begin to taper down even among the apostles. So, for example, in Acts 19.11, God worked special miracles by the hands of Paul. So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons and the diseases departed from them and the evil spirits went out from them. So the healing gifts were so powerful at this point in Paul's life. This is, by the way, 57 A.D. The, The miracle gifts are so powerful that he's not even visiting the sick people personally. He's giving his handkerchief through a messenger and the person takes the handkerchief and gets better. I mean, that's 5780. That's extraordinary. Now, watch what happens in Paul's lifetime. The miracles taper down. At the end of Paul's life, the last book he ever wrote was Second Timothy. The last chapter he ever wrote, chapter four. And he says in that chapter, Trophimus, his apostolic associate, his friend, a, a dear believer, says Trophimus, I have left at my lead. I'm sick. This is about 63 A.D. So between 57 and 63, Paul went from not even visiting somebody, giving a handkerchief to them through a messenger and the handkerchief would make the person better to having a dear friend, a person filled with faith that he could not make better. You say, Paul, if he's sick, you don't leave him, make him better. But Paul left him because he couldn't make him better. So even in the apostles' lifetime, you see a tapering down of the charismatic gifts. And it's very important that you know that. And now, you know why. It would take a number of decades for the miraculous abilities to taper down of all of the people who were in that generation, because the gifts had been given on the day of Pentecost, and the Lord's not just, just remove them instantly. And so it took a while for those to taper down. They became less appropriate as we came into the mystery church age of grace, and when the end times. Return and they shall. Then you're going to find a peaking, a climaxing again of the charismatic gifts. Down at the second uh, bullet point on this slide, I'm reminding you, they would actually take three centuries to taper down the revelatory messages. So in the Bible, you're reading about um, the gift of prophecy, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, tongues, interpretation of tongues. All of those are revelatory gifts. And they were necessary because the New Testament hadn't been written yet until you get to about Revelation 95 AD. And even then, <clears throat> just because these books are written doesn't mean everybody has access to them. Uh, it's going to take a while for them to get around the world. And until they get around the world, what are you supposed to do in church when you don't have a New Testament to hold in your hand? And the answer was, well, you would have to have people with revelatory gifts. And once the Bible finally was disseminated, uh, published around the world, including all the New Testament books in the 300s A.D., now the revelatory gifts start to taper down. So that's what's happening. And we don't expect that we're going to be just like Peter's day, where he raises Tabitha from death and then goes right into the Cornelius vision and all of the things surrounding that. Uh, Even though the majority of early believers had miraculous abilities in the first century, the apostles were still pretty special. So in Second Corinthians twelve twelve, the apostle Paul says, truly the signs of an apostle were worked among you. So besides everybody having miraculous abilities in the early church, the apostles were till, still very special, very unique because they had more abilities. They had what we might call the signs of the apostles. And Paul says, you know that when I came, you could see that the power of God was working in my life. Um, therefore, When the apostles eventually did die, the Apostle John being the last one again in the 90s A.D., when they did die, then the most extraordinary miracles of the church also tapered down because the apostles were first and foremost. All right. Now, reminder that the charismatic gifts do indeed return prominently, In the end times, that is what we call the tribulation and the millennium. And so you can see in Revelation 11, verse three, for example, I will give my power uh, unto my two witnesses and they shall prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days. That's three and a half years. These have power. So they prophesy and they have power to shut heaven so that it does not rain in the days of their prophecy and have power over waters to turn them to blood and smite the earth with all plagues. So once again, the charismatic gifts coming back to prominence exactly as we were told in Joel Joel 2, Acts 2. When you have the cosmic disturbances, you have the maximizing of the charismatic gifts. And if you're not seeing the cosmic disturbances, then you shouldn't expect the peak, the climaxing of the charismatic gifts. All right. So our conclusion on that point. Peter is seeing extraordinary things between the raising of Tabitha And all the things associated with Cornelius' conversion, this is extraordinary. The miraculous things were special in those days. Those miracles eventually tapered down to levels more appropriate for the non-end times in which you live. And in the end times, they will come back to prominence. Life lesson number two. Peter's custodianship of the keys of the kingdom is being fulfilled by this conversion of Cornelius, which we'll read about in just a moment. You might remember that this is a mostly Jewish church between 32 and 35 AD, and they needed apostolic authority to tell them, is it really, like, okay for Gentiles to be Christians, that they're going to be important in God's program? Is it really okay? And Peter is the apostolic witness to this. And we are reminded that in Matthew 16, verse 19, the Lord Jesus looked at Peter and said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom uh, upon this rock. I will build my church. And, and Peter was given the keys of the kingdom. And so in our study in the book of Acts so far, we saw Peter on the day of Pentecost stand up the first day ever that anyone was born again, regenerated with the giving of the Holy Spirit. It had never happened like that before. And Peter was there preaching the Sermon on the day of Pentecost and escorting the Jewish people in attendance there at Pentecost. Escorting the Jewish people into the kingdom of God. He had the keys of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 8, we saw the half-Jewish people, the Samaritans. And Philip had evangelized them and they believed. But they didn't have the Holy Spirit's regeneration, born-again experience until Peter arrived. Peter and John, they laid hands on these people. And once again... Peter escorted the half-Jews into the kingdom of God, the keys of the kingdom. In Acts chapter 10, we find Peter escorting the Gentiles, uh, Cornelius and his companions, into the kingdom of God. So is Peter there with the keys on the day of Pentecost, Peter with the keys in Acts chapter 8 with the half-Jews, and Peter with the keys with the Gentile people in Acts 10. All right, important lesson number three. God's mystery intermission agenda of a great harvest of Gentile believers. A great harvest of Gentile believers is unquestionably clear from this story of Cornelius. So in Romans 11:25, 25, don't forget, we were promised. I do not wish, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. lest you be wise in your own conceits that blindness and part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gent- the full harvest of the Gentiles has come in. So there's going to be this full harvest of Gentiles. And Cornelius is kind of like Breaking the ice here. He and his companions. uh, Once Peter goes here, it changes everything. And you'll see from the discussion that we're about to have. God's mystery agenda was taught to Paul in detail when he was tutored personally by the Lord Jesus in Damascus, Arabia. And he talks about this. We talked about this last week. Peter now is going to learn what Paul learned by personal tutoring. Peter is going to learn by visiting Cornelius and seeing his conversion. So Peter's going to learn it but in a different way. Here's what it sounds like and remember, it was not to you it's obvious. To Peter it was not obvious at first and not to the other apostles that gentile converts could ever truly be equal to Jewish converts. It was not obvious. So here's what it sounds like. This is chapter 10 Verse 10 of the book of Acts, Peter fell into a trance and he saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending upon him as a great sheep by four corners being let down upon the earth in which were all kinds of four footed animals of the earth and wild beasts and crawling things and birds of the air. And There came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spoke to him again the second time, what God has cleansed, do not call that common. This was done three times and the vessel was received up into heaven again. So Jesus had died on the cross. No longer does anybody have to keep the Old Testament law regarding kosher diet and that sort of thing. But Peter doesn't know. It's all new to him. It's not obvious how the Lord is going to handle the next few years, as it turns out, 2,000 years. But he wouldn't know that. It's not obvious to him that the Gentiles could ever be equal with Jewish people. So in chapter 10, verse 28, Peter said to them, uh, this is when he arrives at Cornelius's house. He's been called for. He arrives and he's going to talk to Cornelius. Peter said to them, you know, that is an unlawful thing for a man who is a Jew to keep company or come unto one of another nation. Which is true before the cross, but it's not true anymore. But it's not obvious to Peter. He doesn't know. So he says, you know, I'm not supposed to be here uh, at a Gentile's house, right? I'm not supposed to be here. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore, I came to you without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I asked, therefore, for what reason have you sent for me? All right. So he doesn't know what's going on yet. And it's really important. As you know, this is a learning experience. We're in Acts chapter 10. This is a a big learning day for Peter, and Peter learns it before the other apostles. So this is a really big day in New Testament history. In verse 44, Peter has told them about Jesus, and he's still talking. He hasn't finished talking to them about Jesus, and suddenly he's interrupted. It says in verse 44, while Peter yet spoke these words, you know, he could say, I wasn't finished yet. That's the idea. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word Gentiles. And those of the circumcision Jewish people who believed were astonished. As many as came with Peter because on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Spirit. So Peter is just talking and all of a sudden they've heard the gospel enough to believe and they interrupt and they begin to speak in tongues and all of the Jewish people Or like, knock me down with a feather. Look what's happened to these Gentiles. Unbelievable. They never thought that would happen. The same thing that happened to them on the day of Pentecost has now happened to the Gentiles. In chapter 11, this is so groundbreaking. Remember, Peter doesn't know what's going on, right? I'm not even supposed to be in the house of a Gentile. Like, yeah, you are. Don't worry about that anymore. But you don't know. And not only that, you're going to learn that the Gentiles are really special in God's program. There's going to be this great harvest of Gentiles. So Peter learns it on that day, right? But he's the only apostle there. He and his friends. But he's the only apostle there. So word gets back in Jerusalem that Peter has gone to the house of a Gentile. Horror of horrors. And uh, so look what happens. This is in chapter 11 now. Uh, The conversion of Cornelius is chapter 10. Chapter 11, Peter has to tell what happened to his Jewish colleagues in Jerusalem. So it says in chapter 11, verse 1. And the apostles and brethren who are in Judea, Judea is the region, Jerusalem is the city, right? So uh, the apostles and brethren who are in Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. And when Peter had come to Jerusalem, those who were of the circumcision, the Jewish people, contended with him, saying, you went into uncircumcised men and you ate with them. Shame on you, Peter. What were you thinking? So this is so groundbreaking that Peter has just learned it. And the other apostles don't know it. So he said, Peter, what were you thinking? You just can't go around with Gentiles all the time. What were you thinking? In verse 16, Peter says, then I remembered, you know, when suddenly I'm interrupted by these Gentile people speaking in tongues. Clearly, they received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, just like we did in Acts 2. He said, then I remembered the word of the Lord. How that he said, John, indeed baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the light gift, as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus, what was I that I could withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became quiet. The other apostles said, hmm, you're right about that. They became quiet and they glorified God, saying, then, you know, lo and behold, unbelievable. God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance unto life. We had no idea that that was going to happen. So you see, this is a a big deal in New Testament history. This is a big deal in the book of Acts, which is why 66 verses are committed to this. This changes everything. You know why that's important to you? Because most of you are Gentiles. And this is explaining why you are the luckiest people in the world. So stay with me and we'll learn some more. It was not obvious at first to Peter or the other apostles in Jerusalem That the Gentile converts could ever be equal. You think, well, I guess all of those people were just ignorant in those days. Like, no, they weren't. They were learning. And we're all ignorant before we learn. And there was so much to learn. A lot had changed since the stoning of Stephen and the conversion of Paul. A lot had changed. And there's a lot to learn. So we can't hate them for not knowing. They're learning. And they're learning kind of fast. So if you were to go before the conversion of Cornelius, okay? So let's make this Acts 1 through before the conversion of Paul 9, all right? And we go to the apostles in Jerusalem and say, tell me, learned apostles, followers of Jesus. Can the Gentiles be saved? They say, sure. All right, all right. Can they have, can the Gentiles have an inheritance in Messiah's paradise kingdom? Well, sure they can. And you say, well, could they be part of the household of God? Well, of course Gentiles can be part of the household of God. All right, but let me sharpen this to a finer point. Can Gentiles be saved? Sure. All right. And can they have an inheritance in Messiah's kingdom? Yes, a very good inheritance. Now, what I mean is equal with you. And they say, well, no, the Gentiles don't have an equal inheritance, but they have something very nice. You know, if you go to the reading of a will, not everybody has an equal inheritance, right? Well, the Gentiles have a very nice inheritance. But equal with yours, apostles? Well, no. And can they have a place in the household of God? Well, of course. No, but what I mean is, will it be equal to you in the household of God? Well, no, not equal to the Jewish people. You know, like You have a nuclear family, very close, and you have an extended family. The Gentiles will be our extended family. And so to pursue that, you might say, all right, all right, so help me understand. Because, you know, we believe in the, you know, uh, the mystery church age doctrine of Jews and Gentiles and one new man. And not only that. But there is no difference. And not only that, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither circumcision or uncircumcision. So this is our frame of reference. But we're going back before Cornelius and we're interviewing the apostles. So you say, okay, all right. So, so check this out, Peter, James, and John. When we get to the end times, Messiah's paradise. Would it be common for a Jewish person to take hold of the robe of a Gentile person and say, I want to worship with you. Gentile person, because I understand that God is especially with you. And they would chuckle and say, no, no, no. Zechariah says just the opposite. The Gentile people are going to take hold of the skirt of the Jew and say, we want to worship with you because we hear that God is with you. So the Jewish people don't take hold of the robe of the Gentile people. The Gentile people take hold of the robe of the Jewish people. So that's not exactly equal, right? right? So. When we come to Messiah's paradise kingdom in the millennium, uh, all of Jesus' headquarters is in Jerusalem. That's like Washington, D.C. in the Holy Land, right? Jesus, Messiah's headquarters in Jerusalem. He reigns over the whole world in Jerusalem. And then his near neighbors will be like an equal mixture of Jewish and Gentile people, right? I mean, the people who live in Jerusalem and in the Holy Land, there'll be people from all over the world living in Jerusalem and in the Holy Land, right? The apostles will say, No, silly, don't you know that in Messiah's paradise kingdom, the Jewish people live in the Holy Land that was promised to them from before, you know, the time of Abraham. And so they live in the Holy Land. They are Jesus Messiah's nearest neighbors. Oh, where do the Gentiles live? Oh, you know, out there, but not right there. Oh, so it's not exactly equal, right? Right. They say, oh, no, it's not equal. What would make you think it's equal? They have something very nice in paradise, millennial kingdom of Messiah, but it's not like equal. They can't be in the Holy Land as near neighbors. All right, okay, one more time. So just tell me out here. So you know in the Holy Land where all those Jewish people live as near neighbors to Messiah? Would it be very common that a Jewish person would go over to a Gentile person's house, And help him with his chores, help him with his crops and his herds. And the Jewish person would help the Gentile people, right? I mean, it would be like that. The apostles would say, no, silly. That's not how it works. According to Isaiah and Ezekiel, the Gentile people do favors for the Jewish people in the Holy Land. They come to the Holy Land and they take care of the Jewish people's crops and they take care of the Jewish people's herds. And they help the Jewish people, not the other way around. I mean, they have a very nice life, but it's not equal. All right, so you see, that is what the Old Testament says. That is the Old Testament. Now we come to Cornelius, and he becomes a Christian. And that changes everything. Now, Paul had been learning all these things, right? Up in Damascus, Arabia, being tutored by Christ with personal revelations. But Peter and the other apostles, they're not there. So they don't learn it from Christ personally through tutoring. They learn it through Cornelius, the story we're looking at today. All right. This is mind-boggling. Remember the apostles say, Peter, what were you thinking? You went to a Gentile guy's house. What were you thinking? How could you do that? And it was mind-boggling that Gentile believers could be treated exactly equally to Jewish believers. It It just changes everything. That's what we call the mystery doctrines of the church. People in other ages just didn't know. It's not their fault. It wasn't revealed yet, but now it is revealed. It's being revealed to Peter and the apostles through Cornelius' conversion, for one thing. But this is so mind-boggling, and this is what really knocks us off balance. This is so mind-boggling that this idea was still being debated 15 years after Cornelius' conversion in what we call the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15. Fifteen years later, after all of this, It is still being debated, but can the Gentile people be equal with the Jewish people? Like, this has just been going on for a really long time by the time you get to the Jerusalem Council. And the most amazing thing, perhaps of all, is that if the order in Galatians 2 is chronological, even after the Jerusalem Council, in which they said, yes, the Gentiles and Jewish people are equal, and that's that, you know, that settles it, after the Jerusalem Council... Here is Peter visiting Antioch, where there are lots of Gentile Christians, and he is happy meeting with the Gentiles and eating with them. And then, uh, VIPs from the Jerusalem church come up to Antioch to see how things are going, and Peter says, Uh oh, here come the Jewish leaders from Jerusalem, and I'm not going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. And this was even after the Jerusalem Council. This is after 15 years, and the Jerusalem Council has passed its judgment, and Paul says, when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the gospel, I said unto Peter before them, All, if you, being a Jew, live after the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews do, why do you compare the Gentiles to live as Jews? And all of this after all of that time, it is mind-blowing. And the Jewish apostles who cut their teeth on the Old Testament and don't totally understand all the mystery doctrines and they keep accidentally reverting back to what they knew as kids, It's such a load. You see why this is so important in New Testament history. The truth is we who are in Christ's church today, both Jewish people and non-Jewish people in Christ's church today, we are the luckiest people who have ever lived. And we talked about that a little bit last week. And so I won't uh, elaborate on that anymore. But to be the bride of Christ, to be the body of Christ is a wonderful thing. And that is very specific for the mystery church age of grace. And uh, the Jewish people in the end times are going to have paradise. But you all who are saved during this time in this church age of grace, you have it best of all. Important life lesson number four, the radical disconnection of church age believers from the Old Testament law of Moses, a radical disconnection. And we're not saying disconnection in the sense that we don't love the law of Moses. We do love the law of Moses. We mean radical disconnection in the sense of legal duty, moral obligation. And this is going to be very hard for the apostles to to grasp, the same as Jewish and Gentile equality. This one is really, really hard. But the conversion of Cornelius makes it crystal clear. Um, Again, what Paul learned by personal tutoring with Christ in Damascus, Arabia, Peter and the other apostles are going to learn through Cornelius' conversion. Peter because he's there and the other apostles because Peter teaches them. Here's what Paul learned, and you saw this slide last week. The radical disconnection between the law of Moses as an obligation. It's like the law was your schoolmaster, as the book of Galatians says, uh your school teacher, but you're not in school anymore. When you were in school, you weren't allowed just to go to the bathroom anytime you wanted to. You had to get a pass. Well, you know, you're no longer under schoolmaster, you can just go. Uh, you couldn't chew gum. Now you can't. There are all these rules from the old testament. You're not in the Old Testament anymore. That doesn't mean we don't love it and learn from it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction. We love it. But it's not our standard either to become a Christian or to be a pure, uh, devoted Christian. So here's what Paul learned from the Lord Jesus by personal Revelation, tutoring from Christ. He says, now we have righteousness without the law. This is the end of the law. We are not under the law. You're under grace. You're free from the law. You're delivered from the law. The law is abolished. The uh, handwriting of the law uh, of ordinances was abolished. And so, you see, that's what Paul learned by personal revelation. Peter learns it now from Cornelius' conversion. Again, Peter fell in a trance. Heaven opened up. A sheet with four corners tied together inside animals, unclean animals that are not kosher. And the word from God is kill and eat. You've never had shellfish before. You're going to have lobster now. Uh, you have never had pork before. You're going to have ham sandwiches now. And Peter says, oh, no, I'm not. I wouldn't do that. Now, this is the Lord saying you're supposed to do this. And he says, no, I'm not doing that. Not so, Lord. I have never done that. I have never had bacon. And I'm not going to start now. And the Lord says, what I have cleansed, stop calling that unclean. Now it is clean. This is a radical disconnection from the Old Testament law. In Acts chapter 11, remember the apostles in Jerusalem who weren't with Peter when he saw the conversion of Cornelius? It says, uh, the apostles and brethren who are in Judea heard and they contended with him. Like, you were in the wrong to do this. Well, Peter just had the vision. And he was told to go with the messengers of Cornelius. And so he couldn't possibly be wrong. He he was not wrong. He was right. But the other apostles say, you were in the wrong. And in verse 4, but Peter set forth the matter in order from the beginning to them. Like they don't know what's going on. But Peter tells them how it went down. And it says when they heard these things, they became quiet and they glorified God. There's been a radical disconnection from the Old Testament law. We saw this slide last week. So again, I don't want to belabor it. But, you know, if you were feeling uh, my my passion when I said after 15 years, the apostles were still struggling with this same thing. It's not after 15 years. It's after almost 2,000 years. And we have entire denominations that are built on this error that was discussed in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council. So the idea is, to my credit, you know, I'm a better Christian than you are. Because to my credit... I keep Saturday or Sunday as a Sabbath. You don't have to do that. To my credit, I eat kosher food. I I don't have bacon or ham sandwiches. To my credit, I wear untrimmed beards. I I wear prayer fringes or I never get tattoos because in the Old Testament, you're not allowed to do that. You know, to my credit, I observe Jewish holidays. And on down the list we go. To my credit, I have priests for pastors or symbolic sacrifices, the mass for forgiveness, uh, to my credit, I have church appointed officers uh, that I hope will govern the whole world and the whole world will be run by the church and will execute the heretics and the fornicators and the rebellious kids. Uh, that's that's the, the true religion of God. Like, no, you're getting that from the Old Testament and you're making the same mistake that the apostles made when Peter said, I'm not eating that food. The Lord says, yes, you are too. stop. Well, all of us just stop. Important lesson number five. This is so important. It's just a little lesson. I mean, it's a big lesson, a little passage. The doctrine that individual believers are saved instantly. Do you believe in instant salvation? Instant, in a moment of time. The doctrine that individual believers are saved instantly, in a moment of time, is made unquestionably clear with Cornelius' conversion. So look at verse 44 again, Acts 10. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word. And those are the... Circumcision, who believe, were astonished. So imagine this: Peter visits Cornelius and his family and friends, all in a room, and none of them are Christians at that moment. They're seekers; they're very, very interested, which is why they sent for Peter. But they're not Christians. So Peter is just talking to them, just talking, and then, pow! All of a sudden, they are showing that the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them, speaking in tongues miraculously. There's no question that they're Christians. Now, how long did it take for them to go from unconverted to converted? And the answer is, wham, just like that. In a moment. Instantaneous conversion. That's important that you know. Believers in the church age of grace are saved instantly. In a moment of time. At their first moment of faith. We are not trying to be faithful enough to be saved someday. We're saved instantly. According to his mercy, he saved us. Past tense. It's done. He saved us. You were rescued at a point in time instantly. We are not in a provisional state of salvation. Well, so far I'm saved. Let's see how it goes. We are not in a provisional state of salvation waiting for the final decision to be made on the day of judgment. We are saved Complete. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word instantly. Lesson six is like it. The doctrine that individual believers are saved by simple faith alone from the first moment of their first belief, saved instantly by faith alone, is made unquestionably clear by the conversion of Cornelius. While Peter yet spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word simple faith. You know why this is so important? Because if you're not careful, you forget that it's just simple faith. You notice that there's no sinner's prayer. You know that, what do I want to do if I want to be saved? The answer is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Just believe. Simple faith. Like, well, do I have to have a prayer? You know, it's okay to have a sinner's prayer. If you want to call on the Lord in prayer, that makes a lot of sense. I'm for it. But you don't have to have a sinner's prayer. When Billy Graham's wife was asked about when she became a Christian, you know, Bam, instantly. When did she become a Christian? You know she said? Uh, her name is Ruth. Ruth Graham said, I was raised in a Christian home and as far back as I remember anything, I believed the gospel. When did I ever not believe the gospel? She, you know, wife of the most famous evangelist in recent generations, she doesn't know when she believed. She kind of just always believed. Probably one day when she was four years old, she was suddenly, instantly saved. But it it wasn't something that she could put her finger on, because simple faith. You say, well, when did you say the sinner's prayer? It's okay if you if you want to pray a sinner's prayer, but they didn't. They didn't pray a sinner's prayer. Just pow, saved. And there's no baptism. Their entire denominations that say, you're saved by your baptism. He wasn't baptized. Cornelius and his family, they're not baptized. They just suddenly saved. And then they're baptized in that order. See, that's the normal Church Age of Grace order. There's no attending Mass. Like, well, you have to go to Mass, you know, see how you do. And you have to say confession. And you have to do penance. And you have to go through the rosary. And you have to do other rituals. And then we'll just see if you're saved. Like, nope. Saved instantly. At a point in time, the first moment of belief in the gospel And nothing else is required saved by faith alone in the blood of Jesus Christ alone plus nothing minus nothing. That's what happened with Cornelius. And that is the normal church age doctrine. Important lesson number seven. The doctrine that every single believer is baptized into the body of Christ at the moment of their conversion and not some later ecstatic moment. This is made unquestionably clear in the story of Cornelius' conversion. So again, notice what happens here. Chapter 10, verse 44, Peter spoke these words. The Holy Spirit fell on all those who heard the word, and they are instantly saved. And we realize that they're speaking in tongues. And in chapter 11, when Peter is describing this in yellow font on this slide, when Peter is describing this to his fellow apostles, he said, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John and Dee baptized with water, but you should be baptized with the Holy Spirit. He says That's what happened to these people. They are baptized with the Holy Spirit, same as we were in Acts chapter 2. So someday somebody is going to walk up to you and say, are you a believer? And you're going to say, yes, I am. And then they're going to say, well, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit so that you can speak in tongues? And you're going to say, I was baptized by the Holy Spirit at the moment of my conversion. We're not saying that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is something that happens later. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is what puts you in the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen, by one spirit, are we all baptized into the body of Christ? If you were baptized by the Holy Spirit at the moment of your conversion, then you're not even saved. You're not even in the body of Christ. You're not in the church. The only way you'll ever be a Christian, the only way you'll ever be in the church is if you're baptized by the Holy Spirit. And that happens to every single Christian at the moment of their first belief. You say, well, they spoke in tongues, and I didn't. Fine. In the whole book of Acts, there are only four times people uh, speak in tongues. Speaking in tongues is not the necessary part. The necessary part is that the Holy Spirit indwells you and conjoins you in the body of Christ to Christ himself. So, last lesson. Seeking the Lord is the very best thing you can ever do in your life. And this is powerfully demonstrated by the conversion of Cornelius. Remember, he was seeking the Lord. He wasn't a Christian until Peter visited him, but he was seeking the Lord. When the messengers came to bring Peter to his house, uh, they described him, Cornelius, as a devout man and one who feared God with all his household, who did many charitable contributions to the people and prayed to God always. And when Peter visited Cornelius, uh, he did so because an angel told Cornelius to go send for Peter. And the, the angel told Cornelius, your prayers and your charitable deeds have come up for a memorial before God. Cornelius the centurion is described as a righteous man, one who fears God and having a good reputation among all the nation of the Jews. So he is what you call a seeker. There are about a dozen texts in the Bible that appealed to people to please seek after God. If you seek after God, you'll find him. And God will go to great lengths, whatever it takes, to help you find him if you'll seek him. And that's one of the most important things you'll ever learn in your life. A few years back, when we didn't have so many seatbelt laws, a pastor's wife in Southern California was driving down the Santa Ana freeway and somehow or another... Her four-year-old son was playing with the door. The door popped open and the Santa Ana Freeway is always busy and the little guy rolled out at highway speeds tumbling down the Santa Ana Freeway in the evening with cars coming. Of course, Pastor's wife is absolutely mortified. As a flash, she pulls over. She runs back. And she sees her little boy sitting in the fast lane, in the middle of the fast lane of traffic. He only has a few scrapes on him. He's okay, which is just crazy. And as she runs up to him, he said, Mommy, I saw Jesus put up his hands and stop the cars. You know what's the most important thing you can ever do in your life? Seek the Lord. There's nothing you will ever do that's more important than just seeking the Lord. Cornelius was seeking the Lord. Remember, we started with the story of Helen Roosevelt and the man in the shade praying that somebody would come along and tell him about Jesus. Just seek the Lord. If you're a believer, continue seeking the Lord. Never stop. What you want is the Lord's visitation in your life. You want the Lord's special sympathy, his special presence in your life. And you just keep seeking him all of your life because someday something like this might happen to you. One more story and this will be how we close. Dr. Walter Wilson uh, lived uh, the last generation. Um, A good guy, he's a medical doctor, and he loves the Lord, and he uses all of his influence to lead people to Christ. Well, he was going to make a train ride. The train wasn't going to leave for a long time, so he's in a strange city, and he thought, wait a minute, I know somebody here. Uh, There's a young man here named Charlie Jones. I know Charlie's dad, and Charlie's dad is a friend of mine said, so I'm just going to go visit Charlie Jones and stop in and see if he's doing OK. And I can tell his dad, I saw your son. Won't that be great? So he uh, doesn't know the address. He looks in the phone book. We had phone books in those days. Looks in the phone book. He finds the street address and he goes uh, to the house that he saw in the phone book and said, is this where Charlie Jones lives? And a really nice young lady said, yes, it is. And, and it made sense to him because uh, he had heard that uh, Charlie had gotten married. And so this is, you know. Obviously, uh, his wife. And she says, Yeah, come right up. So she escorts him into a living room. It's a nice little place. And there are also two other people there. And she says, This is, this is, uh, Charlie's family. This is Charlie's sister and Charlie's brother in law. And of course, he had never met them, so he's glad to see them. And, um, then the wife says, Well, I'm sorry, Charlie isn't home. He's working nights now. And Dr. Wilson says, Oh, well, That must mean his business is booming because I didn't know they had a night shift where he works. And she said, yeah, yeah, they they do. They always have. And he said, is this the Charlie Jones who makes motors, electric motors for washing machines? And she says, oh, no, I, I know. There's another Charlie Jones and he lives on this same street in this same city, but he lives 40 blocks that way because, you know, we're east such and such a street and he's west such and such a street. And um, so you want the other Charlie Jones. And our meal gets mixed up sometimes. So you, you you want the other Charlie Jones. And Dr. Wilson says, oh, I am so sorry. I I didn't know. And so he's putting on his overcoat. He's apologizing. You know, he's ready to leave. And he sees that there's a Bible sitting on the coffee table. And he says, um, he says uh, that Bible there. Do do you read this book, Mrs. Jones, and do you love it? And a strange look came over the faces of all three people. And uh, she says, yes, we love that book in this home. And they all start to cry. They're tearing up. And um, she says, Dr. Wilson, when you rang the doorbell, we three were on our knees praying that God would send someone to show us the way of salvation. And we've been meeting here every Friday night to pray for help. Is that crazy? Do you know that seeking God is the best thing you can ever do? If you're not a Christian, you should seek God like Cornelius did. It would be the best thing you ever could do. And if you are a Christian, every day you just keep seeking God. You want more of God's presence in your life, more of his blessing, more of his sympathy. You just keep seeking him. And that's a great lesson from Cornelius. Can we close with prayer? Father God, I pray that if somebody here has never yet believed the gospel, that they would believe it now in the privacy of their own thoughts, that they would look to you for rescue from sin and death and hell. And that in this moment, they would put their trust in you, reach out the best way they know how for your rescuing hand. And we believe that this will be the, n- the moment, the instant of their salvation. And Lord, for the rest of us who are already believers, I pray that we'll spend all of our days, the rest of our lives seeking you because seeking you is the thing that makes us most happy of all. We pray that we'd be dismissed now with your blessing while we seek you in the week to come. In Jesus' name, amen.